And sometimes people just go out to go to the toilets. That was one wonderful training which I got from Ajahn Chah. Because sometimes when he started teaching, I didn't know when he was going to finish. And so in all those teachings, sometimes many hours sitting there, and you weren't allowed to get up to go to the toilet. So I've got an incredibly strong bladder now. <laughs> Look, I don't get up to go to the toilet, do I? <laughs> anyway, uh, for the talk tonight, I'm going to start off with an old story and then go deeper into that story. And that was, because I mentioned this earlier to someone, when I asked them what they thought I did before I was a monk, and I, many of you know that basically my profession, my strength, my academic strength, was as a theoretical physicist at Cambridge University. And I mentioned that I certainly would have bumped in to Professor Stephen Hawkins, but he wasn't a professor then. I certainly remember going to the same uh, teacher. Stephen Hawkins' uh, teacher was this Professor Sharma, and he taught astrophysics of the galaxy. You know, one of the reasons I didn't go further with the academia, so I remember just listening to what he was saying once in one of his lectures, his Professor Sharma, Stephen Hawkins' teacher, and he got so inspired. It wasn't just taking down the notes, but what he was trying to understand. This is you know, how galaxies form. They're just this huge part of nature. And it was just wonderful to see the uh, intuition, the genius, whoever just made these theories up, and just what they all meant. This was how our universe was formed and how it worked. And I thought, wow. And unfortunately, every time I thought, wow, I forgot what he was saying next. <laughs> so I had to borrow somebody else's notes afterwards. But I didn't mind that, it was just, just mind-boggling. And I enjoyed the, the inspiration of being boggled in my mind. But also at that time, one of the other reasons I never took it forward, and this is you know, the, the old story, that I wondered what the heck I was doing this for. Because I look back on when I was only about 14, and at that time in UK, I was preparing for my O-level exams. And I was also good at playing soccer. But my parents and teachers kept on telling me, stop playing soccer. Stay at home, do your homework, and then if you pass your O-levels, then you'll do well in life. They didn't know that afterwards these soccer players got much more than theoretical physicists in their pay packet. <laughs> Anyhow, so I followed their advice, and I did very well in the O-level exams in UK. And of course, what happens next? You do A-levels. And at that time, I wasn't chasing a ball anymore. 
I was chasing girlfriends. <laughs> and then, I'm being honest with you, and then afterwards, my friends and relations said, no, stop you know, going out at night, stay home. If you stay home and you study well, then you get A-levels, then you'll be set for university. Sort of, if you do all of that, sacrifice a little bit, then you'll be happy. And so I did that, and I did really well in my A-levels. Had to go to university. Was I happy yet? No. More work. More studies. More exams. I know many of the parents here, they get upset at me. Because I tell them, tell your children, look, fail an examination. Because as soon as you fail it, you're out of the system. If you keep passing one, there's always another one later on. <laughs> you're stuck. So that's the time I started to think for myself. And there's a time I started looking at these other people who had got um, MAs and PhDs and, and goodness knows what else, Nobel Prizes and stuff. That was helpful for me going to a big university because you got to know people who had Nobel Prizes. And they weren't happy. That shocked me. These were so intelligent, but they still didn't understand life. And that started me doubting, what were we doing this for? Because I thought, if you study hard and pass your exams, then you'll be happy. And I saw that in so many other parts of my life. You go to the gym and exercise, and then you'll be happy. You work hard, save up, and then you'll be happy. But a lot of times people only experience what we call like suffering in life. Work a bit harder, because what I saw was that yeah, when you're in university, work hard, and then when you get your degree, then you can get a job, get some money, and maybe buy a little house for yourself, or a nice apartment. But then what happens when you get the apartment? Then you need a partner in life. So don't we call that apartments, because you want to be together. <laughs> apartment. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so then eventually, <laughs> but that costs a lot of money. And how many of you have to work so hard? It's, it's even worse these days. Houses cost a huge amount of money. And you know, you have to work for years to pay that off. And what do you think when you many of you are in that situation? Got a big mortgage. I don't know why people do this. They pay off their mortgage and what do they do? Sell their house and get a bigger house. More mortgage. <laughs> so anyway, because we always think that when I pay off the mortgage, then I'll be happy. Of course, you know what happens next. You have kids. And once you have children, oh, then you're really in trouble. 18 or 19 years before you can be free. Is that true? <laughs> and then, once you, your kids leave home, they've sort of graduated, got married, gone up. It used to be the case, then you'd have some sort of freedom, not these days. 
because as soon as your kids have grown up, they have kids. And you're free healthcare, free babysitting. So anyway, but then sometimes people think, oh, they're close to retirement. No, I'm going in these areas I'm not really quite sure of, especially retirement, because they won't let me retire. <laughs> but nevertheless, do you look forward to retirement? Because you think, when I retire, then I can be happy. Then I can have more free time. And please, if you do retire, please don't tell me. Because if I know you're retired, then I'll invite you to please join the committee for next <laughs> year. But we always think when we retire, then we can be happy. And it's the other thing which I've noticed a lot. Just look around you, even in this hall. What is the average age of people in this hall? There's a lot of elderly people in this hall, isn't there? Especially those people who are listening online as well. You know, you're the healthy ones, you can actually come here. Why do many people in churches, Buddhist temples, why is it most of the elderly come here? You know why? Because they think, when I retire, or rather, when I die, then I can be happy. I don't know how many people here, when they start getting old, they want to do something, make donations, make sure the monks, you know, nuns, look after them, serve them, because you think that's good karma. So you make the good karma, why? Is it really out of generosity? <laughs> or is it really trying to make sure you get a good, good life once you die? I think laughter said. So anyway, what actually is this? What it is, is we're always trying to escape and think, we'll do this and then we'll be happy. And that's something which I saw even when I was a student. There's something wrong with this. I never saw that many really happy people. Are you happy? It's not good enough, is it? You can always do better. And sometimes that's a big problem because people you love or love you, they're trying to tell you to do better. That's what your parents do. And this is something I rebel against because sometimes parents, they love their children but they're always pushing them to do better. You can do better, work harder, you know, stay home and do more work. Don't enjoy yourself playing football. Don't show chasing women as a young man, which I used to do. And then they think, then you'll be happy. There's something wrong with that somewhere. And the point was that no one really knew what happiness was and what suffering was. Basically, what suffering is, is wanting to be happy. That's a nice, powerful one. For, that'll probably go on a t-shirt soon. <laughs> <laughs> suffering is wanting to be happy. Or well, one of the things which I said when, and you've heard many of these things before, but this Singaporean man, you know, he was highly intelligent, highly educated, and he said, 
I haven't got much time. Ajahn Brahm, the Buddha is always talking about suffering. What is suffering, he said. Quickly. <laughs> and this is where I said, and it's a beautiful thing, which I allow myself just to have intuition, just for allow this thing to come up. And so it's a lovely summary of what suffering is. Suffering is asking for this world something it can never give you. Asking from this world something it can never give you. A lot of times we ask for things which are just, it's out of nature's reach. Cannot give it to you. We keep working hard to try and get this. But, I don't want to go too negative on suffering. Now let's do something more positive. And that is, I mentioned this at the very beginning, what are the most happiest times of your life so far? If I ask you to write down three moments in your life when you were really happy, what would you write down? And it's not, what type of happiness was it? You know, it's not getting the promotion. It's not even winning the lottery if you won that lottery. You know, so many Thai people, especially, they keep on asking me, Ajahn Brahm, I know you've got deep meditation, can you please tell me the lottery? And I really need it. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was telling some of the Thai people a few days ago that once, when I was just on this, what they call on Tudong, living by yourself, walking through the mountains alone, carrying everything you owned on your back, and I just was sitting down resting you know, for um, a few minutes. And as I was just sitting down there, this woman saw me, and when she saw me, she disappeared and came back about 10 minutes later. You know, she was a middle-aged woman. And she came and she put in front of me a bottle of Coca-Cola, a piece of paper, and a pencil. <laughs> what was it? That's what they wanted. She thought I didn't understand you know, the Isan language, was the place I was staying, the Northeastern language. So she thought I would figure it out. Coca-Cola, piece of paper, a pencil. And when I told her in Lao, I could speak that language, I said, no, I don't, I'm not going to give you any lottery number. She took the Coca-Cola away. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, some of the happiest times in my life as a monk were weird times. Times of contentment. Times when I never wanted anything. Not when I got something. You know, one of the first times I experienced that was when I was just a, a student, a high school student at school. And I had the, we had a free afternoon, like a, a holiday. And I had homework to complete, but I was smart. So during the lunch hour, instead of going out and playing soccer with my friends at the school, I did all the homework and finished it before lunch. 
And after the lunch at school, I remember just walking out of that school, having nothing to do. It really was a free afternoon. It wasn't a freedom where I'm free this afternoon, I can get all these other jobs done. It really was freedom. And I thought it was a weird f sensation. When I walked out of those school gates, I had nothing to do. All my duties had been completed. I knew that that evening my mother would make me a nice dinner. I had no place to go, nothing I needed. I just walked through the park. Wherever I went, I was just happy to be there. That sense of freedom, that was as a student. He didn't have much responsibility. But we still can do that today. Now one of the other, this is a deep types of happiness which I've experienced. And that was just, this was as a university student. Yeah, you had your exams, you did well in the exams, you had friends, you had good times. But I still remember the time when I had a very wonderful relationship with my girlfriend at the time. And then I asked her permission. Actually, I asked her, so there's a retreat on, a meditation retreat. I was a Buddhist at the time. And she said, yeah, please go off, have a nice retreat. She wasn't a Buddhist, she wasn't interested in that. But nevertheless, I went there by myself and meditated. What is meditating? Just what I said, just sitting down, letting go of everything. Relaxing your body, being happy to be here. And just from one of those meditations, it got so incredibly deep. That was some of the biggest happiness I've ever experienced in my life. Bliss. Many of you may have heard about um, hermits or religious people who are getting into these incredible bliss states. And what's it like? And of course, just as they say, just so much joy, so much peace, so much love, so much happiness, and freedom from everything else. And once you can taste that type of freedom from suffering, otherwise known as bliss, I feel sorry now for that girlfriend. That was the end of that relationship. Nothing to do with her, but everything when you found something deeper and something more blissful. And that got me interested in what is real happiness in this world. And this is not just for meditators, this is actually for every person on this planet. A few times, we have people who have what they call the near-death experiences. You know, when they die and they're brought back to life again, what happens to them? And one of the things they say, and this is common with those who have near-death experiences, is this one case, some time ago, it was an Australian soldier who was in the Vietnam War and he was just helping a friend who'd been wounded and because he was just looking at his mate he didn't realize where he was treading 
he trod on a mine, a landmine, and blew off his leg. And he told the story of what happened afterwards. Just this incredible flash of light, unbearable pain of having your leg blown off. And then he was experienced very clearly, he could remember everything, floating above the paddy fields of Vietnam without a care in the world. The happiest time of his life, of his death, I don't know what you want to call it. But he was so peaceful, so happy, so blissed out. And then, he doesn't know how long that was, and then he remembered he got a letter from his wife back here in Perth. She had just given birth to their first child. And he thought, that's not right, that's ethically wrong, I can't just abandon my wife, I've got to try to go back, see my son and look after my wife. He loved her. And he had a son he hadn't seen yet. And apparently that drew him back into his body. And then the pain returned, so gross that he just fell unconscious this time. And he woke up in the hospital, starting the long road to recovery. But that sort of admission of what it was like, I mention that often at funeral services for Buddhists. It's not just alone, it's many times this happens. It's one of the most pleasant times of your existence to go past that point of death where your body has vanished. So what is floating above the paddy fields of Vietnam for him? Is this thing which we call the mind. In Buddhism they called it a mind-made body. The reason I tell this and many other, one of the other stories, which was a BBC documentary, a woman who was, the doctors called her a piece of work because she'd been in so many operations, so many procedures, she was always on the edge of death, always very unhealthy. And this time, you know, she actually left her body on the operating table, floating above the body, and she met this spirit. This is her description. And this spirit told her, you're not supposed to die. You have to go back. Now many people are scared of spirits. This woman was not scared at all. She was just so <sighs> argumentative. So she told this spirit, no way. I'm not going back to that horrible old body. It's caused me so much suffering and pain for so many years. Now I feel free. Spirit said, but you have to go back. But I don't want to. You have no choice. You must go back. No. <laughs> and then she said on this BBC documentary, the spirit, this is how she described it, just got hold of her and threw her back into her body. <laughs> and that's when the the most interesting part of the interview began. Because then, in front of the, the television camera, she screwed up her face. I just can't do this. I screwed up her face in utter anger. And he said, I will never, ever forgive that spirit, what they did to me. 
chucking me back into this really painful old body. When I die, next time, when I really die, the first thing which I am going to do is find that spirit. And what I'm going to do to that spirit, oh, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> she was very angry. She wanted revenge. Against the poor old spirit. But anyway, <laughs> the thing which I took away from that interview was that being dead was so much more pleasant than being alive. And that's for many of you a truth which you'll experience for yourself. Getting to that point of death is painful and difficult, it's a struggle. Once you've got over that point of death, it's like you're free of your body. And it's a body where that sickness, where that cancer, where that heart attack, or whatever else is eating away at you, or that wound or whatever, that is now you're free of. What does that tell you? It's something which the Buddha said time and time again. This body, which you know some of you got young bodies, they can look fit and beautiful and attractive. As it gets older, all those bodies. I'm old enough now to have known some beautiful women who appeared you know, on the magazines when I was young. Some of them are still alive. When I look up on them now, <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> Some of the guys who looked so fit and healthy when they were young, now got fat and losing their teeth and they have to dye their hair. Is that true? <laughs> so sometimes you can actually see what is the, the joy and the happiness there. And sometimes being free. But a lot of time people don't want to be free. That's one of the other similes about what is happiness and suffering. You know, sometimes it's like a person is born in this little place and, you know, they're fed well, they're treated well, they go to school and they do well at school, they work hard and they save some money and they get a nice little place where they can stay and they can mess around inside where they're living. They can't go too far because the place where they were born and living is called prison, a jail. You have in prison it's, uh, it's a modern prison, so it's just both genders. So this little prisoner meets another prisoner of a different gender, or maybe the same gender, and they get married, and they have other little baby prisoners, and they do very well if they work hard and behave. They get a nice cell, a big cell with many things in there, and they can get lots of nice food, and they can just go on holidays to other parts of the prison if they wish. And they think that prison is very nice, but they don't call it a prison. <laughs> they call it planet Earth. You're confined here. And you don't know anything else. So you think that, that's as good as it gets. 
because you don't know anything more. And this is one of the problems with Buddhism. I say problems, it's a wonderful thing, but it's a difficulty because sometimes you taste something else, something more richer, more deeper, more beautiful, more peaceful, more blissful. And I mention that with the meditations and with death. Why? What does meditation and death have in common? What they have in common is the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, stops. That's how the doctors know that you're dead. They shine a light in your eye, or they shout in your ear. Apparently they still do that to prove that somebody's dead. It's the same thing which happens when you're meditating. In deep meditation. You know all those stories of people who meditate and they think they're dead? This was not one of my stories. This is from the time of the Buddha. He mentions this in the suttas. There was this monk who was meditating in the forest and then these two villagers came past and they saw him was meditating so still they couldn't even see him breathing. They took one look at him and thought, oh my goodness, this venerable monk is dead. That's one of the problems there, why monks, please don't go, and nuns, don't go meditating in the forest by yourself in some countries because you might end up like this monk ended up. They were you know, devout Buddhists, so they thought, we can't leave this monk to be eaten by the jungle animals. That's disrespectful. We're in the forest anyway, there's lots of wood around. So they got lots of wood together and they made a funeral pyre. And they put this venerable monk on top. They didn't know much chanting, but they did whatever chanting they knew. Wouldn't you do that for me if I was meditating family just sitting there so still in the forest? <laughs> you check the pulse, there's no pulse or whatever, you think, oh, Ajahn Bomb's dead. They put this monk on top of this funeral pyre, they lit it, <laughs> and once the flames were strong enough, they realized, you know, just, you know, the job's done now, the flames will look after the rest, and they were busy people. You know, you don't have much time in your life, do you? So, so many things you have to do. So having lit the fire, flames were very strong, so they went off to collect some mushrooms or whatever. And you can imagine what they felt when the following morning that monk walked in the village <laughs> for his arms round. Not even his robes were charred, <laughs> fully alert and alive. <laughs> That's one of the reasons if ever you see one of our monks or nuns, don't take them to the crematorium yet. <laughs> they may not have died yet. Because if they did, if they were like that, this is actually a truth, this is weird stuff, but it is true that that, you know, they put them in the crematorium in the oven and they usually wait for three or four hours and then the person, even here in Perth, they open up and imagine what would happen. 
it was Venerable Wimoka in there. And then after <laughs> four hours, hi guys, I'm still here. <laughs> Weird. This is true. I just add here this in these days. Okay, that's in the old days. What about these days? There's one of these monks I knew. He has passed away now, but when he was alive, I met him, talked with him, checked out what he was up to, and this was one of those real things. He was an Indonesian monk. Anyone here from Indonesia, from Java? There's a few people here anyway, they're not admitting it. <laughs> but anyway, this guy, he wanted to be a Rishi. I remember this story because we got a book about Rishis a few days ago. And so he went in to a very remote place in the island of Java, into a jungle, and he went there and sat meditation. He was a layperson, not a monk yet. And he told me, this is what he said to me. His English wasn't the best, but it, it made a lot of sense. He was sitting there, got very peaceful, and this like star came into his mind. And I love the way he said this. He married that star, like united with it. And then when he came out of his meditation, he noticed, he didn't know how long, don't have clocks or watches, he noticed that the jungle looked very different to when he first started to meditate. There'd been lots of damage to the trees and the branches and lots of leaves where they shouldn't be. But anyway, he got up and he walked to the nearest village and they were surprised because where he had sat, the damage was there had been a flood for many days. And he'd been underwater about four or five days. He didn't know a thing about it. He was just blissing out inside. And that's typical of what happens in that deep meditation when the five senses shut down and become very still. You know, sometimes you read in the suttas or hear from the monks and nuns who say the five senses is suffering. What on earth does that mean? Compared to what happens when they stop, that is suffering. The most beautiful thing you can ever see is when sight turns off. The most beautiful sound is silence when sound vanishes. The most beautiful feeling in your body is when the body turns off. The most beautiful taste and smell is when those senses also vanish. And what you're left with is the mind. The sixth sense. When that becomes still, that becomes more and more delightful and beautiful. That's why these monks, like that monk Sudama, he can sit underwater for days. Not really, other people think that's impossible. But it is. 
And that's where, in this talk, that's a simile. You've got out of jail. You're in parole. Or you're like temporary outside. See what it's like. That can be done. One of the reasons I mention this is I, I talk like this, people say, I jump around, he's crazy talking about these things. What's that got to do when I can't pay my mortgage repayments? Ajahn Brahm, can you talk about the real world? But then again, my life so far is among many people who have actually come. And they're not even Buddhists. And they tell me they've had some of these experiences, weird experiences. It can be done. People who haven't got a clue what had happened their five senses had stopped and their mind was really still and blissed out. This is one of the reasons why to understand those deeper Buddhist teachings that's when we need that stillness, that peace and have a feeling when we need nothing at all. There's nothing we want, perfectly content and still. That is something else, and if I was like a very powerful monk and I could grant you a wish, what would that wish be? Would that wish be that one of your relations was relieved of the threat of a cancer? Would it be that you know, some of the people you know who have been suffering so much in Myanmar or in Turkey, or in these other countries where there's not enough food. Can we please make sure that their suffering is relieved? Is that really going to help totally? Sometimes, you know, I tell monks and nuns, if you really want to be a service for this world, really help and do things for others. How about just going on a long retreat for two or three months? I did a six-month retreat. Pure silence, never saw a human being for six months. Never said a word. And I first of all thought, am I just being lazy? I'm not teaching, I'm not helping, I'm not doing anything for anybody for six months. Just staying in a little hut, a monk would bring food and put it in a box, I wouldn't see them. And I'd go to that box, open it, see if there was any food in the bowl, which there was. After eating, clean my bowl, put it back again. And that's how it worked for six months. And I. I must admit, I did feel a little guilty towards the end. Maybe I should come out early and do something. But no, I stayed the six months. And then afterwards, so many people said, thank you. That was really inspiring. That people could see it can be done. By example, sometimes I feel there are too many words. 
you've heard all the stories before, all the jokes before, all the other things which I've done before. There's so much, even online. I think someone checked this out and it was almost like true. If you count all the talks by the Lord Buddha in Uttapitaka, sometimes all the talks by Ajahn Brahm on the internet, which is the, the most? It's embarrassing. <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, you teach a lot, but is that real teaching? Or is the real teaching something much deeper than that? Just you know, say it, silence can be done. Give people other ways of looking at life. And that's why I tell these weird stories. People who have cancers are supposed to be dead years ago. Even one of those great monks I saw, Ajahn Tate, when I first went to Thailand, he's been looked after by the king of Thailand, cancer, just untreatable. So he said, well, if I'm going to die, I'll die in my monastery. It's on the Mekong River in Sri Chiang Mai. So he went there to die. About 25 years later, he finally died. I remember visiting. He was very peaceful and happy and healthy. He should have died a long time ago, but never did. That's the trouble with monks and nuns, we're very rebellious. <laughs> but you see those things happening, you see other things happening with, with people. And those kind of miraculous stuff, I kind of enjoy sharing with others. Because it shows you just how little we know. And how peaceful and happy you can become to overcome any type of suffering, not by wanting something, but by just having enough for the time being, and just going to the beach and sitting down quietly, and just letting go of all your wanting, just for a few minutes. Having a holiday, Saturday, Sunday, you're not working. You're not at school, you're not at university. Your holidays. What do kids do in those days? Go and party. Have a good time. You can have a better time if you want. <laughs> just this is just those random associations. But there was one time when I did go to sit quietly on a beach. And that was a time when I sat on Bunbury Beach. I had a free afternoon before going to the prison to teach. And when I was sitting on that beach, it was an uh, abandoned part of the beach. There's no one there at all. Just me and the waves. And I sat there, it's peaceful, so I sat there for two hours, eyes closed, going nice deeply inside. And when I opened my eyes, what I saw <laughs> shocked me. It was only two hours. I opened my eyes and I saw on my left was a 17-year-old young woman in a bikini, a blonde, young, pretty. She was just sitting right next to me on one side. On the other side, there was a brunette, also in a bikini, 17-year-old, sitting on this side. 
honestly, you can't make these situations up. And I thought, what happened? And how did I know it was 17 year old? Because they told me that they had just finished the last exam at school, the year 12s. And that's usually 17 year olds take those. The last exams, the school was just opposite the side of the road. But when I went and sat there, they were just still doing their exams, so it was nice and quiet. <laughs> and then afterwards, they came out in their bathers, the guys were there as well, and they were just enjoying. Last exam is over, let's go to the beach and just enjoy ourselves. And they saw this monk <laughs> sitting there perfectly, perfectly still. I wasn't doing anything, just sitting quietly by myself. But that inspired them. That's why this young lady on one side, a young lady on the other side, and they just waiting. They said they'd be waiting for about half an hour or so for me to come out of meditation so they could ask their questions. And they were really impressed that I could actually sit there quietly with these two young, uh, I better not say, was it B-I-M-B-O? <laughs> no, okay, I won't say that. <laughs> what does that word spell? <laughs> Yeah, bimbo. <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> See you next. But anyway, that's, that's all they wanted, just to ask a few questions. So I answered them and went away as soon as I could. I knew that because if anyone had a camera, honestly, how can you explain that? <laughs> there's, a <laughs> there's a monk. <laughs> with these two beautiful young ladies in bikinis on either side by the beach. <laughs> I've never done that again. If I want to meditate for two hours, go somewhere else, quieter. <laughs> but anyway, it's totally sort of um, uh, without blame at all. But it's just that inspired them. And that's something which you wonder. It's not just the talks. But if you want to know what peace, happiness, release, suffering is to be able to get released from prison and the prison is your body and the five senses and all this thing, you know, trying to look after your own body and other people's bodies trying to sort of make sure you're safe imagine when you know those deep meditations and you realize this body it's nice to be healthy but it's not necessary you can be free, content. Nothing you need in the whole world. I'll leave that with you. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, any questions about that talk this evening? No extra charge for questions. Oh, there's one over there. Where? Question? I can't see. Question. Question there. Okay. Hello. What the young ladies wanted to know? I think what they wanted to know is why I was wearing uh, a funny robe, why I had a bald head. 
But more importantly, what, I, what was I doing there? Because I'd never seen anybody sitting peacefully there. And they were fascinated. You could actually sit there so quietly, you weren't responding to anything in the world. Because these days, can you do that? Sit quietly there, and just on the beach. People come up to you and say, what are you doing? Do you need any help? Anything gone wrong with you? Because it's unusual. When you see something unusual, people often want to inquire what's happening. And that makes things uh, interesting for them. Is there a question over here? Yeah. Okay. Arjun Brahm, for the six-month retreat, did you keep track of time, the days? I did because of the moon days. This was the old way which I learned in Thailand. You would not know what day of the week it was. And again, this is honest, because I know that people can exaggerate, but I didn't even know what year it was. But you knew what, whether it was the rainy season, the cold season, or the wet season, because you saw that in the moons. And we would celebrate the moon days. You know, the full moon, the new moon. And so you soon realize whether it was, you know, around Waisak time, or Marka Puja, full moon coming up soon. So you knew the moon days, but you didn't know the weeks, the months, or the years. That's the same when you're on retreat. You know, you knew it was the, the hot season, or the hot season had uh, turned into the rainy season, or the cold season. You could see that in the sky. But, you know, you, you didn't have any other way of knowing the time. It's lovely freedom to be free of time. Yeah, but one thing which I did learn to do, as soon as I came to Perth, then I made sure I knew the time. Especially the day. Because the first few months over in 4 Magnolia Street, there was a guy who had an epileptic fit. His name was Druber. I still remember his name. And then the ambulance came. And when the ambulance came, they asked this Mr. Druber, what day of the week is it? And he said, I don't know. And I asked the ambulance medics there, and said, why do you ask that question? That's common. If they don't know what day of the week is, we put them in the ambulance and take them to the hospital. And of course, honestly, I thought, crikey, if they'd have asked me, <laughs> that's where I'd have gone to. <laughs> the hospital. Okay, let's get some questions from overseas. Oh, no, Eddie's got one. Okay, yeah. Ajahn Pram, thanks for your very interesting talk on suffering. I feel I want to say something, you know. Yeah. You said about the, our suffering stops when our five senses stops. That is a very deep saying, you know. Yeah. Which people, only people, they won't understand, you know. Okay. What I ask you is, don't you think, you know, our ordinary human people suffering, you know, okay, is made, or when we meet un unpleasant situations, it is made worse by our overthinking mind, you know. Our mind keeps exaggerating things, or make it big, and then fear comes in, all these things, and then in all this, and we make it worse, you know. Yeah, you make it worse. If you can sort of like a how do I say, calm down or you know, realize this thing and understand it in permanence, you know, and suffering, everything is impermanent. And then it could 
help the situation. What do you think? Oh, certainly. Our yeah. overthinking mind, yeah. You alleviate suffering when you don't react to it that much. Mm. You have the physical part of suffering and your mental reaction as well. Mm. And of those two, the mental reaction you can let go of mm. and make peace with it. The physical stuff is, you know, that's kind of there, that's part of having a human body. How you react to it. And sometimes, I don't know if any nurses or doctors here, sometimes you see people have huge amounts of suffering. You can get the uh, CT scan on their brains. Mm. All those pain centers are lighting up. They're really at peace with it. Mm. It's weird. Mm. If you want to see that one of those stories, it's, it wasn't my story, but I did uh, write it out in opening the door of your heart. And that was uh, a little poem called It's Too Much to Hope For. And it was written by somebody else. It's too much to hope for a life without pain. It's too much to dream of a life without pain because pain is important. It teaches us not to touch the fire, to move away from the thorn. And they said there are some types of pray, pain which are, at first sound, feel meaningless. That's chronic pain. Pain which doesn't go away, it's not there to protect you from danger, it's just there. And he said, but there is a meaning. And it's the meaning that the, the, uh, the time when, in spite of that pain, you can live a peaceful, happy life. Mm. And that's only a, a short um, praise of that poem. But what really impressed me when I first read it, I almost cried. It was written by a, a boy called seven-year-old seven Jonathan Wilson Fuller. He was allergic to the 20th century, 21st century. Seven-year-old kid wrote that. And as soon as I read that, wow. Yeah. I wanted to put it in that book. And so I had to write to the estate or whatever, the people looking after him. And they said, oh yeah, please share it. Have our full permission. And that's... I made it, was it seven or eleven year olds? Do you remember? But it's in that Open the Door of Your Heart book, and that's incredible. A little kid could write that. You know, he'd experienced much pain, but he surpassed it. Mm. Amazing. Anyway. Thank you. Uh, we have Tim from Carve, Carnarvon, Wilkinson, and someone from Poland. Why do we tend to get happiness outside more than discovery inside ourselves? Are there any factors that influence the way we think like that? Certainly, it's our conditioning, our brainwashing. I always told you, if you want to see some, something enjoyable, go down to Northbridge, you know, see a concert. Just you know, go out and see the sunset in the beach. See the Australia Borealis down in Albany. Go, have you seen the Great Wall of China yet? That's why I tell people, look, it's expensive to go to China, see the Great Wall of China. Instead, you can go and see the Great Wall of Serpentine next to our monastery. That's pretty long. <laughs> so, so, so the thing is, we always look for outside, as you say. But then, every now and again, someone like me comes along and tells you, you're much more happiness and joy by going inside. And then the five senses stop. People do that. 
My problem is, though, that now everyone wants to sign up for the next retreat, and it's already full. <laughs> it always is. Because people get the message going inside. They go to Jarnagro, Serpentine, for their holidays. What a crazy thing to do. You don't get much of a menu. People just bring the food. <coughs> you can't even eat in the afternoon. And you just have a simple just room. There's no entertainment. There's no TV. And people, are, they go there for holiday. They have to get up really early in the morning, go to bed late, meditate all day. One of the best holidays you could ever have. What was that? <laughs> this lady from... Australian girl from Sydney, one of these high executives. When she came, she said, I had to beg and crawl and grovel for my boss to get the time off. But then she sent me this email after the nine-day retreat had finished. And she said, Ajahn Brahm, as soon as I got back to work, my boss took one look at me and he said to me, look, I don't care what drug Ajahn Brahm is giving you, but please bring me back some next time. <laughs> she looks so peaceful and happy. It's weird, just by going to a place and sitting quietly for such a long time. Anyway, it's the more that people like me talk like this, the more that people tend to go inside. Uh, I am a full-time caregiver to my spouse with no support. What are some of the ways I can manage as a caregiver's stress and anxiety? Thank you. One way, is, if it's at all possible, I'm not quite sure where, you fro where you're from, is to get what we call respite. In other words, that somebody else will look after your spouse for maybe a week or two weeks. So you can do something like have a, re a rest. One of the best places to have a rest is like in a monastery or a retreat center. You can really rest there. But, you know, without any sort of you have to sit meditation, you can rest, you can get up whenever you want out of bed. And you go to sleep whenever you want. But anyway, full-time caregivers, if we can give respite, in other words, someone else just takes over your job for a week or two weeks and you can actually give for a while. It's a beautiful thing to do. Otherwise, you can't really look after your spouse that well. I don't know, or maybe I shouldn't say this, but I've already started. Like for voluntary euthanasia, you know the first person in Australia to legally get given voluntary euthanasia? A fellow called Mr. Dent, D-E-N-T. He was a Buddhist. Many years ago. And I never met him, but one of our monks, Ajahn Yanadamo, met him in think Royal Perth Hospital. Could have been Charlie Gardner's, I'm not quite sure which. Had a chat to him and asked him, why do you want to do this? Have voluntary euthanasia? And he said, because my wife, she's a caregiver. She has no life for herself. And you know, she looks after me 24 seven. And I said, I want to free her. He says, nothing to do with me, but everything to do with someone I love very much, my spouse. And I thought that was very interesting. I can't judge that answer. Anyway, the next question, 
from Piotr, from Poland. I'm wondering, what is the karma for people who see good as bad, different from us? For example, a boy stealing from other people doesn't think it's bad because he needs to get money and food for his family. But it is a lesson for us to learn compassion. Does it mean that it's bad is good? I am confused and find it complicated to understand. Very nice question. Morality. Is stealing always bad? You know, sometimes when you have these moral questions, you know, how many of you read, what's it called now, Les Miserables? All started, not the play, but read the book. And it all started when, uh, was it Pierre Valjean? I forget his name. Jean Valjean, when he stole a loaf of bread because his family were hungry. And that started, you know, he was caught and put in jail for that and suffered for so many years. And that was, you know, the heart of the book. How can you really judge somebody? If that was your kid, many of you had children and they were starving, what would you do? It's a conflict. So many times in the Buddha's karma, the Buddha also said it's not just black karma, white karma, it's black and white karma, they're all mixed together and it's very hard to make that decision. So, how can you make a decision like that? Your kid is hungry and they will die if they don't get that loaf of bread. Is stealing the wrong thing to do? How do you decide? What I've always done, I haven't stolen any bread, but well, how I always think about things, I just make that question very clear and I feel the answer in my heart. The last place I want to, to decide that answer is through my logic. I, honestly, I was a theoretical physicist, I don't trust logic as much as I trust that inner feeling of what is pure, what is good and what isn't good. And I tended to go on that for such a, so many years. It's a bit rebellious. Most of the time you get back to just five precepts or all those rules as a monk, what is good, what is bad. And I have never done anything against those precepts, but sometimes when you actually feel it inside, you know, what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do, please trust that that hardly ever lets you down. And that usually goes with compassion. Uh, just one last little quote. Uh, somebody brought this up to me the other day. It was actually the nuns came to visit on last Wednesday night, the bhikkhunis from Dharmasara. And Ajahn Munisara, she was asking me about that book, about the cat that went to heaven book. It's one of my favorite little books and I did get the library to purchase a few of them, but they all tend to disappear because it's an inspiring book. All it is is a story. It's over a hundred years old now, that book. It's this Western lady living in Japan about this painter who was really destitute and there was a, a competition to actually to do a painting of the Lord Buddha's uh, Parinirvana and all the animals who came to worship at the Buddha's feet 
just before he passed away. That was in the Japanese Buddhist tradition. And this painter got given the contract, it was just a wonderful thing for him. So every day he would meditate, and then he would paint. First the Buddha, and then an elephant, and a horse, and a lion, all these animals mentioned in the suttas. But there was also a little cat who would every day sit next to the painter. And every day the cat seemed to get more sad because the cat would never see himself in that painting. And when the, the painter had finished the very last animal in there, that little cat looked so incredibly sad. And he looked at the cat and the cat looked at him. He said, well, if I paint you in that painting, it will never be accepted. Cat never visited the Buddha. But then he looked to the cat, oh, what the heck? And he painted the cat in there. <laughs> and as soon as the housekeeper saw that he'd broken the tradition and put a cat you know, in this picture, his housekeeper thought, we're ruined. You spoiled it all those weeks. But anyway, it was finished. So one of the monks came from the temple, took one look at it, very well done. What have you done? Putting a cat in this picture. So the monk said, we will take it to the temple, but we'll burn it tomorrow morning. We can't use it. It's untraditional. And so the whole little family there, oh, I should have mentioned, as soon as, soon as the cat saw its image, the very last um, animal on the, the line, the cat saw its image on the, the painting. It got so happy, its heart burst with joy. It died out of happiness, sheer bliss. So they lost the cat. But anyway, the following morning, the, the, the priest said, come to the temple now. You've got to come now. When he went to the temple, a huge throng of people there, monks from all the temples in town were there, who saw his painting. It hadn't been burnt, and he saw where he'd painted the, the cat, the cat had vanished. There was no cat at the end of the painting. He followed the line of animals in front of the elephant, the first animal there, was the cat, and the Buddha's hand on top of the cat. <laughs> I don't know that, but that's just, that's actually how you make decisions, out of kindness, compassion. Yeah, no, cat was supposed to be there. What the heck, put it there. I don't know, do you like that story? And that particular book, when I was a young Buddhist, uh, what Buddha Padipa, I was in, in East Sheen, next to Richmond Park at the time. Now you could hardly get that book out of the library. It was the most popular book in that Buddhist temple. The Cat That Went to Heaven. Short book, but beautiful. That is what compassion is all about. A boy stealing from other people doesn't think it's bad because he needs to get the money. Just give him some money. Out of kindness, compassion. That might change that boy's life. I'll go, keep going on again. I hope you enjoyed that, but I keep asking too many questions. <laughs>
or answering too many questions. Is that okay? We finish off there. The other story, which I'm not going to say it, but about the thief who came and stole from the temple. I said that a couple of weeks ago. And they put, the monk came out and said, what are you doing? I'm stealing. So I said, have a key. Don't try and open the box with a knife. <laughs> and have some food as well. There's plenty of food in the Buddhist temple. <laughs> and then as soon that thief got arrested, and then after the thief was arrested, went to jail for 10 years. And then when the 10 years later, the monk came and saw the thief was back again. He'd been in jail for 10 years, but now he was free. He had a big knife opening up the, the donation box. Do you remember me, said the thief. Oh yeah, it's you, here's the key, <laughs> said the monk. But the monk said, no, last time I stole the wrong thing. I stole money and food. I've been thinking about you, you're the only person who's ever given me kindness and cared for me when I was robbing you. So I've come here to ask to become a monk. So this time I can steal kindness, compassion and wisdom from you. That's what I always wanted, compassion and wisdom. So if a boy steals, what do they really want? Money, yeah, but kindness, love. Guy's probably got no family. That's what they really want. Anyway, I go keep going on again. So, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And now bow three times to the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha. Patipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami Oh boy.